Father, we need your help to see the big picture here and that it wouldn't just be a lot of information or a frustration, but that parts of it would stand out as we take a view from higher up and we'd understand what your son was trying to do with the, the Jews of that day. Uh, may those parts stick in us. May we always take from your word, reading it on our own, listening to a message or a sermon on the radio, may there always be at least one thing that we grab onto, write down, reflect on, meditate on, pray about, and seek to apply. And so then may that happen today. May something from this sermon stand out. Uh, that, again, helps us to be uh, moving forward in our Christ-likeness. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have um, a few people sick. We have quite a few that are missing because of Thanksgiving weekend. So you can pray for them as they seek to travel back and the weather changes, um, as it does around here. At least they project it, and then you never know what's really going to happen. Could be 70 degrees this week. We'll see. Um, but as you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and we kind of summarize, we covered the first five chapters in individual messages. We're going to cover six and seven as kind of the lump sum of the, the rest of what's here. And so it, it makes it a little more um, difficult. But as he shared this message with them, little did they know that within 40 years, um, their nation, their uh, capital of Jerusalem was going to be devastated. Um, a million, million one, they estimate, Jews died as the Romans came in over a period of a couple, three years, and um, starting in 68 AD and began to destroy them, all the way leading up to Masada, when a, a small group held out at the end, and then finally um, they were executed to have one person at the end commit suicide, because that was really against the Jewish way, but they didn't want to give the Jews anything. And so as we kind of look at our country, look at our lives, look at this message that we're covering today, we have no idea what's coming in the next 40 years. It may be 20 years, 10 years. Um, there may be a crushing blow on this country, and it'll be because God loves America, uh, because God is causing all things to work together for good, because his desire is not a temporary um, happiness and blessing and richness of America, but it's eternal life. It's a, it's a personal relationship with him that he's after. And so you want to rejoice in whatever you're going through right now um, and see that from that perspective. I heard a message on the radio yesterday when I was working uh, about Thanksgiving, and it really stood out to me um, that we're not thankful enough. We thank him for the good things, but we do not want to thank him for the hard things. So I just want you to keep that focus as we kind of get into this overview. I gave you a handout in case I don't cover something uh, it's pretty involved. I wasn't going to give it to you. That's another reason I didn't give it to Robin. I didn't want to overwhelm you with too much, and then I realized I can't cover all this. And so I, I've at least got to give you the freedom that you can go in here and look up some things and see how they relate. All of Scripture can be outlined. I'm an outline person. The reason I outline is because I work hard at observation to begin with. When you're looking through what's there, the who, what, where, when, how, why, you're, you're asking questions, you're pulling out from the text what it says. That leads or comes out of a mechanical diagram that everyone loves because you loved English in school. And it broke the English down for you so you could see all the different parts and what the main parts were and subordinate parts and how it all came together. And don't resist that. 
open yourself back up to learning a proper understanding of English, which will lead you in turn to a proper understanding of Greek and Hebrew. Because it's really important to grasp what's going on in the text and not to have to depend upon someone teaching you, which I will not on Sunday mornings. I'll be doing Bible study on Wednesday nights for a while, either to finish the book of Revelation or until Isaac decides it's time that he would like to take that. So um, Wednesday night, we're in study number 26, or in the folder back there. We'll hand out 27, Lord willing. But as, as we get into this, this has been the heart of my ministry, is God's Word. And, and I'm saddened at, on some levels that people haven't taken it more seriously. To memorize it, to meditate on it, to apply it to your life, to spend time reading the Word to where it's not five minutes or, or even an hour, but it's, it may be a whole day. Where, where you just plunge yourself into it, and you sit there and you go, I don't have time for that. And um, there'll come a point where you're going to have plenty of time for that. If America gets crushed, or if you're sitting in a jail cell, you'll have a lot of time, and God said, I'm taking my time back. You know why Israel went into 70 years of captivity? Because they went for 490 years not keeping the Sabbath in obedience to him. He took all those Sabbaths back as he took them off into captivity. So as we look into this, and I have my last opportunity, I'll try to cram everything I can into this. But this little sermon, how many of you read it out loud this week? Okay. Three or four? How long did it take, approximately? I timed it. I set a stopwatch. It took me 13 minutes and 15 seconds. And I... Took time. I even wrote down a couple of things. Oh, i got to look at that again, or i look at that again. Um, so as I've told you, you can read it within 15, 20 minutes. It's very easily done. This is fascinating when he takes that long and yet crams so much into that. Mostly because he's God, but it's because it's God's word in all of Scripture. Whether Jesus said it or someone else said it, and God passed it on to us, it carries the same weight. So the picture here, back to 5.2, just to kind of get some overviews, which a lot of what I'm going to do, it was a focus on his disciples. And a disciple is just a learner, not a believer. You want to make sure you clarify that. Many disciples stopped following him in John 6, 66, around the end of that chapter. Because they weren't believers. They were just learners. They were going to school. You ever quit school? Drop out of a class? That's, that's what a learner can do, because that's all you are. So learners are those who are taking in their, this word, mathetes, is the idea they're imitating, they're abiding, they're passing along the teaching. So if you're a true disciple and you stay as a disciple, it will carry on. This is what you need to be examining your life about and saying, am I abiding? Am I imitating? Am I passing along the teachings to somebody else? If you're not, you may not even be a disciple, let alone a believer. You may be a churchgoer. So these disciples, it says here in, in um, chapter 5, that he was teaching them, healing them, casting out demons, and he goes on and gives a little more in Luke 6, as he um, also covers the Sermon on the Mount. People think it's two different sermons. I don't. And if you look at it closely, you'll see similar, or, um, and kind of blend it, you'll realize that they go very, very well together. They say, well, the one's on a mountain, the other one's on a flat surface. Well, where do you think they met? On the mount. They weren't hanging off the crags. They were on a flat surface. 
And so he's interacting with them, these disciples, and they're from all around. They're from Galilee. They're from Syria. They're from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea. They're beyond the Jordan. He's making a point to tell you, as Matthew writes this, that they've come from all over the place. They put out great effort to come hear him. And as you look at Matthew 5, 6, 7, you look at Luke 6, you realize they came to be healed. They, they came, they were touching him, a whole bunch of them. They came to have demons kicked out of them. They, they were looking for something, but they also came to be taught, it also points out in Luke. But it's a great multitude of disciples in Luke. It's not just the 12. You may get it in your head. No, this is a great multitude of learners that were gathering and a great throng of people outside of that, kind of the looky-loos. Whenever the police or the fire department have a, an incident going on, you get a lot of looky-loos. If it's on the highway or on some road, they all slow way down and they're all rubbernecking. And you, you get into this traffic, you go, well, now what happened? And you realize it's just a bunch of rubberneck, rubbernecking. They just want to see what's going on. And sometimes they cause new accidents. What a looky-loo looks like? Well, no, a rubbernecker looks like. So as, as you get frustrated with them, you're, you're going back to being like Jesus, and you learn to have gratitude and be thankful, and that the road is clear, and you can keep moving, and whatever other things you need to be thankful for. But, but he's entering here with this group, and he, he tells us right up front that he's out to help them. With the introduction, he began to teach. His message was coming out of chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he had said just a little ways earlier and led into this sermon. Repent. Change your mind, which is going to change your ways. It's going to cause you to turn from what you're doing to, to start doing what he wants you to do. It's missing today. Many people who come to Christ, who profess salvation, never repent. They just add him to the repertoire. They, they put him as one of their idols on the, on the mantle. They're, they're just kind of um, wanting fire insurance, and so they grab onto him, and it's, but it's not really a relationship. It's not really a recognition of the difference between me and him as one who is spiritually broken. So he called out for that. His focus, specifically, the emphasis he gave here is on God's kingdom. Kingdom's mentioned nine times in this sermon. And on God's righteousness, mentioned five times in this sermon, especially chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the priority of what he's after with these disciples. First, God's kingdom, his reign, and God's righteousness, his rules. This is what somebody who really repents and changes their mind, they change from whatever master they had before to making God, Jesus Christ, their master. And so everything changes. Everything about my life changes. And as you look into this, chapter 5 is on distinctions, chapter 6 is on directions, chapter 7 is on decisions that are being made. I don't just make these things up. If you take the time to look at the text, you will see it for yourself as you walk through it, that this is what he's doing. He starts off with these distinctions. The Beatitudes are nine steps for getting into and enjoying God's kingdom. And we've covered those and covered those and covered those. But they start with that spiritual bankruptcy. Nine steps. The first three, if I were to give you some clarification, and a lot of this is on this extra sheet, the first three really cover justification. The spiritual bankruptcy, the mourning, the surrendering to God. The second three, four to six, cover sanctification. 
Having a spiritual appetite now as a new believer. Having this compassion, this innocence toward God and toward others. And then the third one on the glorification. The uh, idea of spiritual reconciliation, um, the, the rejection of what's around us, looking forward to the future, the persecution that comes when we are truly walking with God. And so the, the goal is going to be personal righteousness. That's what these Beatitudes are going to lead us toward. What does that accomplish for us? What do you get out of that when you follow those nine steps? Blessings, Blessings generally, specifically. Eternal life, eternal life ultimately. Salvation. Salvation in Christ. A changed life. That is a major part of this. You will never not be the same. Another one? Assuredness. Okay. Assuredness. So you have eternal life and you're confident of that. You can trust him. And it goes on and on and on here. But these Beatitudes had a purpose. They were the way into the kingdom. These are the, these are the steps you take to get there. They haven't changed. They weren't just for the Jews. It's for mankind. Then he points out a boldness there in chapters 13 to 20. And the first one I want to stress here, as you look at the, the, the idea of him describing the, the salt and the light, is he's bringing out the idea of the students that are here. And he tells them to be wise. And it's going to show. As he gets to 17 and 20, and he talks about the, the fact of what the law was for and how it was beneficial. It goes back now, it's, you're not just students, you're also teachers. That's what a disciple is. And you, they were to be great in the kingdom if they carried out the teaching of what they were learning. So again, I keep trying to stress to you, if you don't have the learning and the teaching, there's something missing in your life. So you can stop and ask yourself, or even take out a piece of paper, and write down, who are your disciples? That's what he told us, that commanded us, Jim mentioned it earlier, commanded us to make disciples. Who are your disciples? You should be able to write them down. You may only have three or four, Jesus had 12, and then he had a multitude of disciples. There were the 70 that he sent out. There were 500 that, that witnessed uh, his resurrection. Who are yours? One point that I want you to grab onto. If you do not have a disciple, something's not right. Because what replaces not or having, or having a disciple is simply excuses. We start telling God, I don't know enough. I don't have enough time. What else do we say to him? I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough time. It's scary. I may teach them something wrong. This hasn't crossed your minds, I can tell. If you don't have disciples, it better cross your mind. You better be asking yourself, what am I doing? Am I wise as a student? Am I great as a teacher? Am, am I having this impact? Because that's what's going to happen to me in the kingdom. Those who are faithful in this regard will be great. So he gets into this balance. We've covered all this in detail. And he covers this five areas to be balanced. He just picks on five of them. The, the external murder Versus an internal anger that really is the problem. He wants us to promote peace, forgiveness, reconciliation. Fulfills the sixth commandment. External adultery really is the problem. is It's internal lust. 
He, he's promoting purity and faithfulness and self-control. Fulfill the seventh commandment. The third one, external vows really need to have an internal integrity. Promoting honesty, integrity, sincerity. Fulfills the third and the ninth commandments, depending on which one you stress more heavily there. The fourth one, external revenge, internal forbearance is really what he's after, that you're putting up with those around you, that you don't quit, you don't move away, you don't divorce, you don't lash out. You're not seeking that. You're showing forbearance just like Jesus did. You're promoting humility, generosity, long-suffering. You're fulfilling the first commandment to not have another God ahead of the one God, and that God being you. The fifth one, external friendships, really he's after an internal love, promoting godliness, selfish, selflessness, and these friendships that are needed. This fulfills all five to ten, number five through number ten of the Ten Commandments, to love your neighbor. That's all pretty straightforward, right? Understandable. How are we doing? How are we doing with chapter five? How does it look in our lives? Have we reached that level where God is pleased with the distinctions that are showing in our lives, the changes that have come about because we've come to Christ? It's really dangerous. If someone becomes a believer and does not start being discipled very early on, what do they learn? If you have children and you don't teach them anything, what do they learn? No, they learn. They learn bad habits. They'll learn from everybody around them. They're learning from the schools today. Lapine may not be as bad <coughs> as some others that are aggressively leading them into communism, in, into perversions, into whatever they're doing. But they'll learn from somebody. And people can't figure out what's wrong with the children of today because the parents didn't train them. What's wrong with the church of today because the Christians didn't Train them. This new person comes to Christ, and you give them just a little window, and they start building bad habits. And what you're teaching them is they don't need to be in the Word. They don't need to be accountable. They don't need to be in fellowship and be part of other relationships because it takes hard work. We think love is easy. Oh, just love everybody. Love may cost me my life. And ultimately, it should. Sacrificial devotion. So as he comes in here, he's stressing to them in chapter 5 this perfect internal righteousness. That's what he's after. And trying to help them understand that this is not a simple little thing that you just kind of add to your life. This revolutionizes your life. If you've really come to know Jesus Christ, your life will never be the same. If you have taken the time because no one discipled you, that's just as much your fault. Because you didn't seek out someone. Look at all these people hanging around Jesus. Why were they there? Because Jesus sent out invitations? Because he made demands as a rabbi that they had to put in their time and they had to punch a card? Why were they there? Well, he was a teacher, but there were many rabbis around. They wanted to learn from him. That is your side of the responsibility. You should pursue that learning. How are we doing? I'm going to keep asking a lot of how we doing. Because this is the crux of what this message is about. Into chapter 6, we didn't go there yet, and uh, I'm just going to summarize. But he goes into this righteous living in three different ways. He's talking about alms, talking about prayer, talking about fasting. 
And so as he's putting these together, he's going after, now he's giving them directions of how they're to live their lives, and who is he contradicting? The Pharisees, the hypocrites, as they're called a number of times through here. In public, he says, don't sound the trumpet like the Pharisees. When you do what? When you give alms. When, when they were at the temple and they had, they had a literal trumpet shape that you could throw money into. I've seen some of those kind of at your toll booths. Remember how when you used to be able to throw change in, now they do everything electronically. And they'd have something that would catch it. It was big enough that you couldn't miss. And then it would funnel down and take the money wherever it was supposed to go. That's what they did at the temple. And when the Pharisees came in, it was kind of like, when they threw theirs in, they wanted the trumpets to blow. And they made sure they did. Ooh, a Pharisee just gave. Not two mites like that woman over there. He gave a chunk, and you'd know what it was. And you made sure when you passed the offering plate, you used the big open flat kind so you could see what landed in there last. So you knew what the person next to you gave. Then they went to the deep pocket ones that you, that you know, they went to those. It wasn't so you couldn't see. It's so you couldn't take. Are you guys awake? Yeah, make change in the offering plate. Put, it, put in a 10, take out a 20. We've got an offering slot. We've decided we didn't want to make a focus of that. Because when he gets in here, it's not to let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That's a figure of speech. How can my left hand not know what my right hand's doing? He's trying to make a point here. If your hands don't even know what you're doing, this one's in a different location when this one puts the money in, then how much more is he trying to make a point that nobody else should be paying attention to that either? It's between you and the Lord. We're not to compel you to give. You should give generously. I haven't preached on that for about six years, according to what Jim told me. Money doesn't come in because you tell people. Money comes in because the heart changes. What you share with them are needs. And they give. If God wants it to be given to. And so as you're looking through here, they made a big fuss out of it. They gave alms. For public viewing, God says, give them in secret for God's viewing. And when you get to the righteous living, the whole area of prayer that I would love to spend, and I spent two messages on that when I did it last time. Don't pray to be seen by men like the Pharisees. What did they do? What's it tell you right there? You are following through the text, right? What did they do? They loved to stand and pray in the synagogues. Remember Luke 18 we talked about where he's right up front there making sure everybody sees him praying? And what else did they do? They stood on the street corners in order to be seen by men. They weren't, the focus wasn't God, it was men. Sometimes we do that. I've been in churches where I could tell somebody's praying to the audience and not talking to God. But he says, he says don't do that. And, and worse yet, don't use meaningless repetition. When you think of meaningless repetition... What religions come to mind? Catholicism? It's my last message, so they can't do anything to me now. Episcopalians? Muslims? Certain, certain rote things that you say it over and over. They repeat the Lord's Prayer, and it tells them right there, don't do that. Oh, but if I say the Lord's Prayer ten times, he has to listen. He just told you, don't use meaningless repetition. You're missing the whole point of it. Pray to your Father who's in secret. Who are you trying to have listen to you? God, not man. Don't be like the hypocrites. 
Third thing he points out, when you do fasting, which is not popular today. In fact, when I think about it, alms are not popular, prayer is not popular, fasting is not popular. They're all going to cost you. I've had people tell me, oh man, I, I put in an offering, I put in $5. Well, if you made 5000 this month, that's pathetic. If you didn't get any money this month and you're giving out of the little you have left, like the widow, fantastic. That's between you and God. But so is the whole area of prayer and the whole area of fasting. We don't like to deprive ourselves. How long do you have to fast for in order to accomplish this? When you fast, what did the Pharisees do? Tuesdays and Fridays. And they did it publicly so everybody could see them. You do it in private, and how do, how do you hide it? Because when you're fasting and your stomach's growling, you drink a lot of water, but how do you hide it so people don't realize you're fasting? What's it tell you here? Wash your face. Okay, well, it's going to come out of your mouth that way as well. But he, he tells them specifically, do not put on a gloomy face. That's what the hypocrites do. Pharisees, oh, it's Tuesday. Here I am fasting again. What they don't tell you is they ate before sun, the sun came up. And as soon as the sun went down, they gorged themselves. They, they neglect their appearance. You know, they let their beard grow. They, they just look shaggy, clothing. Man, I just I didn't take a shower today. I'm really suffering. That's kind of what they're after here. He said, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. What, what made people do that? They were happy. They were celebrating. They, they, they were enjoying life. How are we live in our lives? How are we doing? Is fasting a part of our lives? When I fast, why do I fast? Is it make an impression on people? Or is it to concentrate on God? I think it's, I keep uh, forgetting, but I think, I didn't look it up this week, but Isaiah 58, I think, is one that's really big. One of the chapters in there was really big on fasting. And, and Israel, um, in fact, just to back up a second, when we do fast, and, and maybe you're not fasting, maybe you just chose to not eat, what's the motive or what's the reason behind that typically? You're really... Okay, if you're talking to God, but I'm just saying, if you didn't, you're not even trying to fast, you just chose to not eat. What's typical? You either just got done throwing up, okay, I'll throw that one out there just for the fun of it, or, okay, you could be dieting, which is always a pain and you're going to look gloomy. And what's the third one? A what? Okay, you could have other psychological issues that are making you do that. I'm sorry? Oh, you're, yeah, you're mourning. If, if your wife just died, guess what you don't do for a while? You might, it might be that you just lost your job and you have no idea of what you're going to do and you just took out a big loan on your house. And all of a sudden, food is not important. I'm stressed. This shouldn't be stressful. This should be the other way around. When I enter into God's presence, who can do anything at any time, to meet any need. Why would I be stressed? When I'm crying out to him uh, with, um, in prayer during this time of fasting, I, anointing my face and washing, I mean, anointing my head and washing my face, I'm in a celebration mode. I, I've, I've kind of gone into my happy place. 
I'm with the one who knows all about me. He knows all my ups and downs. He never quits on me. He never says, that's, that's the tenth time you've done that today, Jack. I'm done. You ever notice people treat you that way? Because they don't love you. You never do that, though, do you? You never cut somebody off because of what they've done to you or how they've treated you. But the issue here is I go to God and my, my focus is on him. My enjoyment is what's being highlighted, not my stomach. And if you do this as a regular basis, and I, like I said, I, don't, I think the Pharisees cheated. But if you do it as a regular basis, your body will adjust. If you do it as a weekly thing, your body will get used to it. It's just what, what it does. It's very healthy. A lot of people do it for that reason. Not just dieting, but also just for health. And find that out in, in the whole cancer world. But, but as you're going in here, the idea is he's after um, righteous living before God. And the, the word he keeps repeating there is, your father will repay you. It's like when you pray, well, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast, God owes you. Isn't that kind of weird? No? He's going to repay you. Repay me for what? Repay me for the sacrifice I put in? I gave away 10 bucks, and what does God give me back in the kingdom? Way beyond anything you can imagine. When, When I talk with him, and pray with him, and I take an hour of time. Maybe I go for a walk because I fall asleep if I sit somewhere. God says, I'm going to repay you. Why wouldn't we be jumping at the opportunity to, to invest into something that we know is going to come back? When, when I'm fasting, whatever I've lacked from that, God said, and again, with the, with the purposes behind this of God's glory, not mine, then he's going to repay me. I, I thought that's just an interesting thing that, that stands out in there. But what he wants us to do is to be masters of our own lives, to seek first his kingdom. He goes into this area with 19 to 34. He talks about two things, treasures in heaven, because that's where my heart's going to be. My future focus, my hope is on him. That's what I'm demonstrating when I invest in heaven. But God is going to constantly be testing me in my heart desires. Constantly having opportunities to be challenged. Do you really love me, Peter? Do you, do you really love me, Jack? Do you, do you put me first? Is your hope in me? I'm going to give you opportunities to prove that in your life. If you're a disciple of mine and I'm training you, you're going to move along that area. But there's not just treasures in heaven. It's also trusting on earth. My future focus now becomes my present faith. My future hope, trusting that he's going to provide for me, in areas that I may be lacking in right now, will be a future, I mean, a present trust. Constantly being tested in my life concerns. This is where God allows things to come in, and he, he tests us, and he, he checks out something. First, like with Bev last spring when she had COVID, it was just last spring, right? It seemed like ages ago. There was a couple points in there I didn't think she was going to make it. She had it really bad, went for a couple months. Um, they were trying to deal with it. And so I literally had to remind myself, which I did when we were dating before we ever got married, that she wasn't mine. To be open-handed with God and to say, okay, if you want her back, I'm not hanging on. I'll be sad. I'll miss the meals that she makes. (laughs) What's that? Go ahead and fast. Oh, then I can fast. Okay, that'll work out really well. You know, you know, 
I know. Whatever I do today, I can't fix later, so I better be careful. But, but he's, he's bringing up this whole thing, and, and the, the focus he gets down to is that verse that we know really well, ties in with the kingdom, seek first. Top priority in my life. First thing I think about when I wake up, the kingdom of God. What I'm focusing on during the day when I have to make decisions, kingdom of God. When I go to bed tonight, I'm reevaluating how I do. Talking to God, sharing with him how to do regarding the kingdom. Because I'm supposed to seek first. That's my priority. His reign, his rules. His kingdom, that's just the idea of, um, of God being the king over that realm. But it's his reign. And then his rules, which are based on righteousness. When you go back to the Old Testament prophets, that's what is going to dominate the earth when Christ returns. Righteousness. That is so exciting to consider. That is so different from what we're living in right now. And I don't mean how bad America's gotten in the last 10, 20 years. America's been bad from the beginning. George Washington had to kick a guy out of the army because he was homosexual. We think, oh, there's all these things are new. They're not new. They just were clamped down on. They weren't permitted. They weren't encouraged. They weren't taught in the schools. They didn't focus on sin. They focused on righteousness generally as a nation because they needed God. But when you went out into the Wild West and they got away from civilization, as they called it, go back and look at politics. Go check it out the last 240 years of America. You'd, you'd be shocked to see what has happened. Politics haven't changed at all. They've shot it out sometimes. They hated each other. They called it mudslinging. I shared with you last week about Edward, uh, Edward Stanton and what he did to, to Lincoln back in the mid-1800s. We think there's new things and there's nothing new under the sun. We just, we're just living in it. And so as we seek first the kingdom, this is what he's after in our lives. Put him first. All my decisions is, God, what do you want? What's your will? How can I please you? I, I, the only way I can really answer that is I have to get into his word. I have to know the scriptures. This is the thing. If I told you one thing about my life that I am the most excited and joyful about is that they taught me early on to get into the scriptures. The people I was around, the classes I was able to take with Multnomah Extension, Multnomah Bible College, with, with the people I was surrounded by, internships at my church when I grew up, where they, we memorized books of the New Testament. I didn't know how important that would be. Those, I have used those my whole life. And, and do you think it was time-consuming? I don't memorize easy. In recent years, when Ben Harris was an intern one summer, we tried to memorize Titus. I didn't make it. I got a couple chapters. It's hard. But those verses come back to my mind. I didn't just rotely try to remember them. I tried to live them out. I tried to put them into practice. And the scriptures is why when I left you the first time, and I'm leaving you again, so to speak, not to retire, but just to change my, my occupation, it was the shirt said, read your Bibles. I don't think I'm being taken seriously. I keep finding people saying things. And I don't always speak up, but I hear, overhear things in Bible studies and different things that people say, and if it's really, really bad, I'll correct it. But sometimes I go, nope, that's not what the Bible says. Have I been with you so long and yet you don't know? 36 years. 
for some that are here. And so I, I wrestle with that. I feel guilty. I feel responsible as, as a um, shepherd that is to feed and to tend and to care for and to protect the flock that I've had many people drift away. And some of them I've gone after and can't win them, can't get them back. Some of them never knew God in the first place. So he, he's talking about these distinctions amongst those who are entering the kingdom. He's talking about the directions he's giving them on how to live. The top three things of giving, praying, and fasting are, are areas that should stand out in the life of a Christian, and yet they shouldn't be seen at all. How do you do that? Somebody invites you to lunch on the day that you're fasting, what do you do? Have a fast lunch, okay. Have fast food. Yeah, that would, that would work. You try to move the date. You try, well, I can't, you know, or you have it on your calendar. I'm busy with God that day. I can't go to lunch. Use my calendar. How often do we take the calendar out and we put down what God wants on there first? And then we start fitting in the other stuff. I've had people come to me and say they're just exasperated and exhausted. And I'm saying, well, why do you keep saying yes? You need to write those days in. I'm going to spend Tuesday with God. Write it on your calendar. Somebody calls you up and says, hey, are you free today? Or free tomorrow? You look in your calendar, nope. You don't have to tell them why. You don't have to brag or sound a trumpet or, or make sure they all know, oh, I'm going to be fasting tomorrow. I'm going to be doing my part for the kingdom of God. But your schedule doesn't allow for it. If I seek first his kingdom... He comes first in everything. He goes from those distinctions to the directions. The distinctions are the way into the kingdom. The directions are the way within the kingdom of how that kingdom um, dwelling individual lives. And then you get to these decisions. This is the way because of the kingdom. This is the, the decisions that I'm going to focus on. The distinctions are perfect internal righteousness. The directions are practical external righteousness. It's how I'm carrying it out as a kingdom inhabitant. And then the decisions is a permanent eternal righteousness that I have. It's, it's, it's what I'm choosing to do with my life. And he goes into a, some basics here. Basic attitudes, basic expectations, basic choices, basic fruit, basic results. This again is so often missed by so many. As you take 13 minutes and 15 seconds to read out loud with emotion, with, what do you call that, inflection, expression. I read it out loud. My, one of my grandchildren walked in in the middle of it, and I had time to say, give me a couple minutes, and I went back to reading out loud. And they stood there for a second, and then they walked out. I wasn't rushing through it. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount, that's five chapters. How much do you read a day? If I gave God 10 minutes, I'd get through. The, the first chapter was five minutes. The second chapter was four minutes. third chapter was four minutes and 15 seconds. Because I had a stopwatch going and I was keeping track. In case I got interrupted, I didn't want to have to re-guess what it was doing. But as I looked at this and I saw these things stand out, it was so clear and so simple. My basic attitude, he gets in this whole area of judging others. I need to have first discernment, self-examination, self-correction. As a student, I'm checking out the information I'm being given by God. The time I'm spending in his word, I apply to myself. 
I use it for discernment. But then I move to the discrimination. This is the second aspect here. I'm, I'm hearing, as I, um, taking it in, I'm giving approval, I mean, um, sorry, hearer examination. I'm now taking that information and passing it on to somebody else. I'm seeking to make approval of them as a teacher. I think the student-teacher idea that comes out about disciples shows up a number of times in here. First, I zero in on myself as a student. Secondly, I zero in on my disciples as a teacher. You know where you're going to learn more? As a teacher. And that's why I think it's so difficult for people to be grasping anything today because they're not doing step two. They'll take it in. They'll think about it. They'll say, oh, yeah, I, I need to fix that or fix that. But until you turn around and pass it on, this is where people go, how do you remember everything? Because I have to preach it out loud every week, teach a sermon every week, interact on Sunday nights with the men. I love it, but it's what helps me remember. Otherwise, when I stopped preaching for about six months, I was shocked at how some things started fading from my memory. So I'm going to keep going with Wednesday nights. When they take that away from me, I'll have a Bible study at my house. On an off time, I'm not trying to compete, but I will do something. I am going to be making disciples. That's how I'm not going to be retiring until I'm dead, which may be next week. You guys are really quiet. Too much turkey this week. <laughs> Pull what out of my hand? You said take that from me. Oh, take that information from me? Well, you're, you're, you're a hearer and a doer. Oh, no, I'll be teaching Wednesday nights. It'll still be. And I'll be there Wednesday or Sunday nights, but I have to be a little more quiet Sunday nights. But he's talking about these basic attitudes that I'm going into. And the tendency on my part is to only take what I learn and use it to judge other people. All of us do that. But we only do it in the areas that we like and that we really took in. The, the areas that were kind of like convicting or challenging, we kind of went, I... I I'm buddy-buddy. I've watched this. I've been watching people lately. I can't name names, and you have no idea who it is. But I'm watching people. When you act like those around you, when you love those who love you, as he was talking about with the, the Gentiles and tax gatherers, you get along great. As soon as you have to tell somebody, no, I don't drink anymore. No, I don't carouse anymore. No, I don't go to bars anymore because it's detrimental to me from my past. No, I don't. What happens to your friends? They start backing off. Why? You're making them feel uncomfortable. You're bringing conviction into their life. They know they shouldn't be going to that bar and getting drunk. They, are, they already know that. They have a conscience, most people. When they don't have it anymore, they show up on the news. As a sociopath who could go around killing people and have no no qualms about it whatsoever. That's pretty rare. Most people have a conscience. Why you can share the gospel with people and God will use it and convict them. But they may not want to hear it a second time. They may cut you off. So as, as we're in this, we've got to be careful that we're not condemning them with the idea of judgment, but that we're simply passing on the truth and reminding them that that's where I came from. And at times I'm still struggling. But the basic expectations on helping other people when you get into 7, 7 to 12, we need to depend on God's promises. He always provides. We need to depend on God's practices. He always gives what is good. 
We need to depend on God's principles. He always blesses the righteous. I'm assuming you took the time this week to read these because I can't get into it. But he's talking about prayer here again. Ask, seek, knock. And he talks about how God responds to you when you do that. And this is what he's trying to get to. And he says in verse 12 with a therefore. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is why I can act a certain way. You want somebody to stab you in the back? Then don't stab people in the back. You want people to be committed to you even when you mess up? Then be committed to people around you when they mess up. Pull closer to your enemies in loving them. Don't run away from them. And don't gossip about them and don't judge them and put them down. My basic attitudes is not judging. My basic expectation is this idea of helping those around me. Ask, seek, knock, pursue what God wants. Basic choices in verses 13 and 14, he gets into the gates. Basic fruit into trees. Basic results into foundations. And you'll see all that on your paper. So a lot of this you don't have to take notes and you cannot misunderstand what I was trying to say. But the gates here, there's two choices. These are directions to enter in to which gate? The narrow gate. We've described this before, that you have a broad eight-lane highway heading to destruction. Everybody's on it. All your friends are on it. It's where everybody's having fun, partying, all the stuff they're doing. They're all on that broad road heading down. And God calls you out as a disciple, and he says, I want you to take the narrow path. And what he's describing there, if we were to take the time to explain it, it's the little cow trail or animal trail. It's through the thicket up, up the hillside, and you can't take anything with you. Your backpack will catch on to things. Whatever you have will catch on to stuff. So you, I'm sorry? Well, yes, if you're a true disciple, you're not following the world to destruction. You take this narrow path, and you take it all by yourself. See, everybody's trying to find all of these supporters to prop you up. No, you have one supporter to prop you up. It's God and God's word. Yes, fellowship's great, but I can't depend on you in fellowship. Some of you actually have bad days once in a while. Don't you? I picked on the, the sound booth last week when I found out that the sound wasn't on for eight minutes. That wasn't good. Mark's still here. Mark handed me the microphone, showed me how to make sure I don't do that again, or the, the whole thing. It's, you, you work with people. You, you, you don't give up on them because they make mistakes, even the pastor. But these choices, I have choices to make, and it's really clear. To enter by the narrow gate. The gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Expect to share the gospel with 100 people and have one or two come to Christ. Then you're not disappointed when 98 or 99 of them, at best, ignore you, at worst, attack you. That's the expectation. He says it right there. What's my job? Make disciples. What am I responsible for? What, what, do I have a count? If you've been in sales and they give you a quota you have to reach for the year or you're going to get fired, they'll put somebody else on that area, that district, you're in trouble. God, what's God's quota? How many disciples are you supposed to have when you enter into heaven? 
He didn't put any quota on there. It's going to vary greatly from person to person. But don't give God excuses. Well, because I was so quiet. Oh, because I lived in La Pine, just a little bitty town. There aren't many people here. We figured out um, John MacArthur's church in the population he was around and this church in the population we were around, we had a higher percentage of the population going to our church than John MacArthur did. That was fascinating to me. If you want to compare, who's comparing? I just heard someone on the radio yesterday. They said the churches are shrinking. The average church today is 50 people. I said, I heard that 30 years ago. Average church in America is 50 people. So what do, what do they mean, shrinking? And so I don't trust statistics and what they're claiming and at a point of what they're trying to promote or, or prove by what they're saying. Churches are small. Few there be that find it. They're going to be small, especially in an area that's persecuted. He moves from the gates to the trees, and we go from ba basic choices to basic fruit, inspecting the fruit. The danger here is to watch for false prophets and watch for false professions. I don't jump up and down when somebody claims to come to Christ. Sorry. There, people think I'm cold, I'm hard. I've had way too many make professions that meant nothing. Some of them didn't even make it the week. You'd call them up and try to get together for lunch or for a little Bible study, and they started giving excuses right off. I had people fade away from their profession of faith within two weeks, gone. Even to the point of some saying, leave me alone. I'm kind of like, well, I didn't make you profess faith. I didn't, well, I don't understand. But he tells me to make disciples of those who will make disciples of others. And so people have gotten mad at me for not following them up. You haven't visited me for two months, three months as a pastor. Well, you haven't been at church. You told me you aren't interested. You, I can give you whatever the reasons are. And it's like, well, no, but you're still the pastor. You're still supposed to come visit me. I had people that wanted me to visit, even though they wouldn't come to church, just to collect their offering and for me to see it. They actually wanted me to open it up and look at it. I haven't, and I didn't, and I irritate people. I always took somebody with me visiting, I never went alone. And if they handed me an offering like that, I turned and handed the person that was with me. Did not open it, did not look at it, had no idea what they gave. I, have, I do not know. I stay out of that realm. You can be rich and poor. You can be generous or, or stingy. You can be whatever you are in this church. I'm not treating you a certain way because of that. I don't know. But I can tell by your lives how generous and stingy you are. How your involvement in loving the church. I could guess pretty well what your giving's like. I don't need to know the numbers. The heart will show in the way I'm sacrificed. But, but here they had people in the church. Well, for us, the church was going to be created in Matthew 16. He said he was going to build his church. But here they had people in there that were already false prophets teaching wrong, teaching, claiming it's from God. A lot of that today. Many books out today. Popular books that are, are from false prophets. But then also false professions. Many people that are claiming things that they don't really believe. You know how you test it? How do you test gold? What if you got a rock and had some quartz and people say, there's gold inside there. How do I find out? I have to break it up, get the gold out of it or melt it out of it, and then I put it through fire. How many times? Seven times if I really want to purify it to 99.9, .9, whatever they claim. And, and then 
I have other ways of checking, testing it. I can put chemicals on it. I can do stuff to it to tell you whether or not it's gold. I know one test is not good for the gold, so they don't do it very often. What does God do with, with us? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for the testing of your faith. He's doing that all the time. And what do we say to him? Thank you, thank you, thank you. It makes me want to give more alms. It makes me want to pray more. It makes me want to fast more. Is that how we respond? I hope so. That should be the norm for a believer who really trusts God, has their hope in him, and is seeking first the kingdom. This body of ours is expendable. This body is his. I can honestly say, because of the scripture put it in my life, that when I found out I had cancer 11 years or so ago, I didn't worry. I didn't panic. It, I think it had more pressure on my wife than it did on me. Okay, God, next phase we're going to go through. I think it's partly why I'm still alive. God never intended to kill me with it because he could have early on. And I know other friends that have died from the same cancer I have, who got it after me and have died one a couple years ago. Why am I still here? So I can preach at you. <laughs> so after today, I can die. But I don't want to be a false prophet. I don't want to make a false profession. I want people to inspect my trees and realize they are genuine. The fruit is godly. And when he gets down to 21 to 27, the same passage, he goes to the foundations. But one more thing I want to mention as, um, in this 21 to 23 as part of this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, verse 21 of chapter 7, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who does that sound like? A disciple who's seeking first the kingdom? They're practicing what they're professing. That's what he's looking for. It's a true heart change. It's an individual that's genuinely repented. Their life, their will, their lifestyle changes. But then he makes a statement, and it's really hard. I, don't, I brought it up many times, and I don't want to say it loosely. But many will say to me on that day, what had he just said up in verse 13? Or I'm sorry, 14. Few are those who find it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I'm a religious person. I go to church regularly. I give alms. I pray. I fast. I prophesy in your name. I cast out demons. In your name I perform many miracles. Whatever that means. Then I will declare to them, I never gnoskoed you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see the contrast here? It's not about religion. It's not about a profession. We've had people come in here over 36 years that we've been, and Bev and I have been in Lapine. We've watched a lot of people come through. I don't know why they came here, some of them in the first place. We welcome them. We befriend them. We reach out to them. We seek to disciple them. And only to find them do some things that if I name some of the sins that I know have been committed by people that attended this church for a while and then faded out, you'd be shocked. You name the sin. Those people have been here. Because the reality of who they were showed as you gave them enough time. They weren't practicing righteousness. They were practicing lawlessness. And you just needed the right situation 
to understand and to see it. And it typically took some pressure. I love it when people get mad at me. Because then they're real. This one thing I hate as a pastor is hypocrisy. There's a lot of phoniness from people. Oh, and, and they want to call me Reverend Jack, or they want to call me different names, and I could care less. It's not a biblical thing. I, then why do you call Jesus most reverend? Why is Paul called Paul? But they elevate, and when they do that, I kind of went, eh. I've had people that practice a lot of um, um, Romans 16. Flattery. I hate flattery. There should be no more focus on me than anybody else in this church. All of us have a role to play. All of us are equal in God's eyes, and and we have a responsibility. The tendency here is that we put on this front, and we make these claims. This is what I did. And they're telling God, like, like he doesn't know. What do you think they were doing when they're practicing lawlessness? Do you like the way America's going today? The term lawlessness is being used by unbelievers. America's become lawless. That's what these people are doing, and yet they're professing to be God's children. They're professing to be religious. And he has to make it very clear to them at that point in time. I never knew you. You didn't have salvation and lose salvation. You can't. I never knew you. Those are the most sad words I think that we're going to hear in the days ahead as we watch people stand before the judgments. And they'll have nothing to say because they will know the truth. They will know that what God is saying is the truth. They have nothing to say. And that's why you have the one parable where the, the gentleman's found came in without wedding clothes on and when they confront him, he is speechless. I want to reach those people. I want those people mad at me. I want to hear words out of their mouths before they stand before God speechless someday. Not because I did something wrong, but because I genuinely loved them and reached out to them. I genuinely prayed for them. I may have even fasted for God to do something in their life so that I could devote my mind fully to his attention. Take the hour that I would have for lunch and I give it to him. Just what he's looking for today. Folks, it's coming. It's coming really, really fast. And if you only come to Wednesday nights, which a few of you do, but there's a group, I'll keep telling you as we go through the book of Revelation what's coming. Now I got ram, I took, took off too far. I need to clam it up. These foundations, he, he gives you two of them. You can build on the sand or build on the rock. I was talking to Melissa yesterday. I said, God said to build your house on the rock. The rock is Jesus. She goes walking out of the office saying, the rock is Jesus. You got to build on the rock. Don't build on the sand like we do in Lapine. One good earthquake here. You watch the houses go into the sand. The heavy part goes down, the light part comes up. What am I going to do? Nothing's changed between God and I. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to still have my hope in my eternal life. But I'm going to recognize here that it's Jesus Christ is the only one I can build on. And yet, so many of us are building on other people, other heroes, other things like money, mammon, riches. I'm trying to build up, trying to get to a certain point. Then I will give God my life. 
Sorry, it doesn't work like that. You will regret not putting him first. So as he concludes this, the multitudes, as I mentioned many times in the earlier messages, they're totally amazed. He taught with authority, not like the scribes. I can't imagine what the scribes are teaching like. I can't imagine what they were saying. But it was almost like wishy-washy. It was almost giving people options. Well, you can be like this and be like that, and it's okay. All roads lead to God. Everybody's going to get saved someday because God is love. You know why they were teaching like that? Because they're hypocrites. Look at Matthew 23. The reason they were teaching like that is because they lived those lives of lawlessness. Why would I go around convicting you when I'm doing it myself? What does that do in return? Convicts. So I'm looking for buddies. I'm looking for drinking buddies. I'm looking for people that can be a part of what I do and join in. And so we're all comfortable, and God owes us. That's what I'm looking for. The point here, what Jesus is telling these people, this crowd that have pursued him, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let God be the boss, and let God's rules, his commands, dictate how we live our lives. You'd be shocked at what that will do to the world around us if we really make that the priority that we run after. Let's pray. Father, it's going to get harder, which is good. We think it's hard now to follow through on what you want. We think it's hard now to sacrifice and, and to give up things as we think of, but you're going to repay us. That should never be a consideration on our part, that we're losing something. I just pray that you'd help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves as we fulfill the Ten Commandments. That we would do it from the heart, not just with some external um, lifestyle to impress people, or platitudes where we give them all the right words and make them think we're really sold out to you, and in reality we're not. Lord, convict us. There'd be someone in this room today who really doesn't know you, or they do know you, and they've been playing games then I ask you to spank them very hard. I ask you to straighten them up. I ask that this church be as clean and pure and focused on your kingdom as possible as Isaac comes in and takes over. It'll make his job a whole lot easier, but more importantly, it'll bring glory to you. So thank you for your perfect love for us and your perfect word that we have available to read and study every day. It may be obvious that we love you as we take your love letter and pour over it every chance we get. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.